Well, good morning. It just kind of as a way of introducing the morning, I just want to say that uh, if you're visiting, um, the text this morning is a text that will challenge you as it challenged me in preparing. And uh, I trust that God will use it to, to speak to us. We have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And this morning, we are going to be looking at chapters, two chapters, uh, God willing, 24 and 25. And let me just say something. As I said to the uh, class this morning, I was teaching Revelation this morning. My brain has apocalypsis right now. I have an apocalyptic brain because I've been studying all week Revelation chapter 9, Matthew 24, and I'm teaching this afternoon in the women's Folsom prison on Daniel chapter 9. If you're familiar with that text, that's a doozy. So uh, my brain is just like... Um, with, I even dreamed uh, in apocalypsis ways last night, I think. I was probably woeing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, I want to tell you as we look at chapter 24 this morning, I probably read 10 different commentaries, books. Every one of them believes something different. I'm not exaggerating. I even read a book by my esteemed colleague and friend, who I respect greatly, Mr. Douglas Shearer, who was here this morning. On his take on chapter 24 of Matthew, he wrote a book on it. Yeah, he says, <laughs> is the correct interpretation in his mind, but I'm sorry to say he's going to be shaking his head a lot this morning at me. <laughs> because I'm going to probably differ with him in some areas. And just knowing him, it's going to frustrate him greatly. And he'll text me a long text this afternoon that I'll read gladly and joyfully and probably learn from. Seriously, uh, this is a very difficult text to interpret. But I want to say as I begin, the purpose of this teaching this morning is not to try to interpret it so much as it is to get the heart of what God is saying to us through it. Because there is definitely a clear message so let me pray, then I'm going to read it. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll look at it. Father, thank you this morning for the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for faithful men who wrote your words, the words of the Lord Jesus, so that we 2,000 years later could read them, could ponder them, could learn from them, and be strengthened in grace in our lives to live our lives for you. 21st century California. America, amazing. We pray for hearts this morning that they would be open to hear the Spirit of God. I pray that you would use my words, be they accurate in every sense or inaccurate. You know my heart. You know my desire. Be glorified today, Lord. And we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. So please, if you would, in your Bibles, I don't know if it'll be on the screen, Follow along, I'm going to read straight through Matthew 24 so that you can hear it and that it will have the impact that I believe that it needs to have as we begin to look at it. I'm reading out of the ESV version. I'm going to actually begin in chapter 23 in verse 37 because we need the context. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together 
as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them. He said, do you see all of these? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the, mount, flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if, if, I, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the, manor, the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. As I was praying about these things this week <clears throat> and just realizing how many different interpretations there are of it, and then knowing what I was teaching in the morning and Revelation and then in the afternoon, I just kind of laughed to myself. I thought, why, Lord, why, why, oh, Lord, why? Why are you giving me all of this in one day? It almost seemed too coincidental. And I felt like the Spirit of God spoke to me and he said to me, that's because this is how I've made you. And, you know, we are all so unique. I'm loving Matt's teaching, as I know you guys are as well. It's just blessing me to see him grow and communicate the Word of God the way that he is. And I also felt a little insecure about standing in front of you today. In light of that, I mean, just a tinge. But I just, I felt like the Lord said to me, this is who I've made you to be. Because the one thing I have in my heart is I look into things in God and I say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me what you're saying. Tell me what you're saying and what you're doing. Lord, that I, want to, that I might hear you and that I can say to the church, I believe this is what God is saying. And that's not to say that Matt doesn't do that as well. He does. But there's something in who I am that I'm, called to do this. But I felt a little bit, as I was praying too, I thought, you know, Lord, may it not go in one ear and out another because we run the danger of heralding a call, almost like the boy that cries wolf, where you hear it and you hear it and you hear it and you hear it, and then you hear it so much that you don't believe it anymore. You hear that we are living in the last days of the last days. You hear that. And, and when, when you hear it so often, you kind of can go, you know what? Yeah, I, I think that might be true, but so what? And then the Lord led me to remember, and I obviously know the text, but let's look at it together, Second Peter chapter 3, because I think Peter felt a little bit of what I felt as I was praying and preparing. Second Peter, his second letter in chapter 3. He talks in chapter 3 about the coming of the Lord, of the day of the Lord when the Lord would return. And he talks about how it will take place. And what it's going to look like. And 
and feeling like he might have probably said these things, I think he must have said these things again and again and again and again as a man of God, as an apostle, as an elder in the church. He then says in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, just like what Jesus said. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then he says this, and this is the message today from the heart of God. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and even hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire, and so on, and so on, and so on. Kath and I got saved in 1975 in the heart of the Jesus movement in Southern California. At that time, there was an author named Hal Lindsey who wrote and sold millions of books on the topic of the last days. The vantage point that he came from was one that the church would be taken out. And maybe, maybe many of you in this room have been taught that your whole life, that the church would be raptured is the word, taken out prior to seven years of intense tribulation on the earth, at which time at the end of the Lord Jesus Christ will return. The theme of Lindsay's books were basically don't get left behind. That was his message, is don't be left behind. There were even a couple of movies made. Uh, Distant Thunder. And it was like the, th the thunder of the drumbeats. Of the, you know, and it scared the heck out of everybody. And it scared some people into the kingdom, I think. I'm not sure if they're still walking with God. But there were many people who believed it. You know, I don't want to get left behind. I don't want to go through the tribulation. I got, we got saved into this movement in this church that believed that. And I had a call on my life, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to serve him full time and even to go into ministry. But to be a pastor in that movement, you had to believe that. And I never could wrap my heart and mind around it. I hadn't studied these things at that point. I was a young believer. But in my heart of heart, I'm thinking, I can't see us not being here at the very end when so many people need the gospel. And airplanes crashing because the Christian pilot gets taken and cars on the freeway, you know, and all that. I'm going, ah. So as I begin to walk with God and I begin to go into ministry and teach, I begin studying these things. And obviously I've landed in a different place. I do believe that we'll be here till the end. I look forward to it. Not to going through difficult times, but to seeing the Lord's return. I hope, I pray that I live to see him return to earth. But if I don't, I want my grandkids to be prepared. And their kids, and so on. We pass this generationally, don't we? This faith from generation to generation. We are studying in Matthew the fact that through the book of Matthew that we are not of this world. That we as believers are born from above, that we are now, but have been born into the, the kingdom of God, transferred from darkness into light by the grace of God. And we are in, now in a world that is yet still under the grip of darkness. 
And every, everywhere we turn and look and anything that we read and anything that we see and watch even, we can see the darkness is increasing. The things that we're seeing so visibly on television you would have never seen, we all know this, 50 years ago. Things that are seen and done now in movies, you would have never have dreamed of seeing them 50 years ago. Morality, the wars that have impacted the earth, the things that are taking place, all of them seem, and they are in fact increasing and becoming more and more severe in the sense of the darkness that is emanating from them. But the text that rang in my heart this week was a text in Revelation 11. I'll read it to you. Verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. You see, that is the goal. That's what God is doing right now. God is sovereignly in control of the affairs of mankind in all that's going on in the earth. And the goal, and in fact, it will come to pass that the kingdom of this world will become ultimately the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. A loud voice in Revelation 16, 7, when the seventh bowl, the wrath of God is poured out that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24 in some, to some extent here, when it's poured out, a loud voice comes from the, from the throne of God from heaven and it says, it is done. It is done. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdoms, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And both of those are marked by cataclysmic events in the heavens and on the earth. The seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, the seventh bowl in Revelation 16, both speaking of the same event, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. All of them were marked by cataclysmic events in the heavens and on the earth as we are studying and realizing as we've gone through the book of Revelation. So we've been growing in our understanding of what is truth regarding what is happening in this world and who we are, that we are born from above, having been ransomed by the Lord Jesus through the cross, through the grace of God on the cross, our sins being dealt with and ransomed from darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. So what does it mean, though? And how does all of what's going on around us, what meaning does it have? We know that God is sovereignly in control, as I said, and he is at work behind the scenes. But what he is doing is that he is bringing, this is what's amazing, the New Testament teaches, is that God is bringing all things in heaven and on earth in subjection to his Son. See, it's God's desire that everything be brought into subjection. The Father's desire has been everything brought into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. That he, in fact, is and will be seen to be and will be known to be and eternally will be Lord of all. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making, listen, making known to us the mystery of his will. I would ask you, do you know the mystery of the will of God? We'll talk more about this. 
making known to us the mystery of his will, what's going on, according to his purpose, he says, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Wow. So we are living now between the ages, between his first and his second coming, his first and his final appearing on earth. And it's been 2,000 years. And that's why Peter said, the Lord's not slow. He's not slow. I mean, he was living in the first century and he's struggling with it. Every, every Christian leader worth their salt and probably any believer worth their salt through the ages have felt they were living in the last days. You had to know the early church did. You, you had to know that the, that the, that the church in, in the Middle Ages, going, undergoing all of the things they went through, the remnant in the Middle Ages, had to have believed they were living in the last days. You had to believe the Reformation leaders had to believe they were living in the last days. You had to believe the, the believers during World War I and World War II, the Civil War, let's go back to that, had to believe they were living in the last days. The, the World War leader I and II, Christian leaders, had to believe. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, men like this. As do we. Because the reality of it is we do live in the last days. But there is also a last days of the last days. And Jesus speaks to that in Matthew 24. But here's the thing, though. This afternoon, there's a huge football game. For those of you that know, the 49ers are playing in the NFC Championship. And tomorrow, you're going to get up and you're going to go to work. And then some of you are going to go to school. And then you're going to go have coffee with somebody on Tuesday. And then you might go to a home group on Wednesday. And on Thursday, you're going to write, sit down and write and pay a few bills. If you still do that, I don't know, nobody pays bills anymore. You do it all online. In other words, you're just going to go about life, normal. Nothing is going to seem to change. You might watch the impeachment hearings starting Tuesday and Wednesday. Dial into those a little bit. Check out the news. See what's going on in other parts of the world? Maybe, maybe not. Because you know what? Nothing seems to ever change. Things just go on as they always do. Except in England where a lot's going on right now. <laughs> right, Kat? <laughs> but is it just truly going on as usual? No. Not according to the Lord Jesus. And that's the point of chapters 24 and 25. So this chapter, as I said, is hotly debated. Many different men, godly men, disagree on it. But my point is today not to talk about the interpretation as much as it is that we would hear the heart and urgency of the Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks to his disciples regarding what is ahead. And so it also entails understanding the context 23, the judgment that was spoken to the Pharisees and to the nation of Israel and it also means that we must understand chapter 25 where there are two parables that speak to the need to be prepared. So chapter 24 is sandwiched between 23 and 25 and they form one huge thought. 
And the disciples came to Jesus and they said, look at the beauty of the temple, because he said to them that this temple, the, the Jerusalem would be desolate. And they said, look at the temple, Lord, look at its beauty, look at its splendor. And he said, not one stone will be left standing. That's a shocking statement to the disciples, to those that had been expecting a rebirth of the Jewish nation. nation. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to make a point to them. But when they had an opportunity after he says this, they asked him actually what they thought was one question, but really were three questions. They asked him, when will these things happen? When will that happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? And as we read the Gospels, we are struck often with the fact that Jesus will answer the actual question that is asked and not the question the person asking thinks he's asking. He does that all the time. He actually answers the question that's asked actually, and that's what he does in this case. So to the disciples, all three questions in their minds, listen, dealt with the same event, but Jesus' answer shows that there are two events being asked about. Now this, this whole interaction is recorded in Luke 21 and in Mark 13 as well. And they are all very similar. But it's really confusing to try to figure out what is he saying regarding what? Because there are two events, at least for sure, that he addresses in Matthew 24, in Luke 21, and in Mark 13. And the two events are the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 AD, when Rome came and ransacked the city and destroyed the temple. And then he's also talking about the end and his return. So it's hard at times to differentiate between the two. But he says there are signs. There are certain things that will show you what is going to happen in regarding each of them. I put together a, a, a chart that I think will maybe help us understand a little bit and simplify Jesus' answer to them. Because it addresses two different things, but they all seem to be confused together. One is regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. The other is regarding the end of all things. First thing he says regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, I believe, is he says that the time is identifiable. He says, when you see the army surrounding the city, you'll know. Regarding the destruction of the world, the time is unknown. The next one, put the next one up for me. Regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, it will occur, he says, in this generation, speaking to the disciples. And in fact, in 70 AD, it took place, which was within the generation of when they were living. But regarding the world and the end of all things, he says, it will happen on that day. Regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, the event prior will be unusual. Regarding the destruction of the world, he says the events prior will be typical. There will be advance warnings regarding Jerusalem. So don't go back down, he says, and do this and do that. You'll be warned. In fact, it's found out in human history that no one perished in the 70 AD. No believers perished, they believe, in 70 AD because they knew what was going to happen. But regarding the end times, there will be no warning. Signs, I'll differentiate, but no clear warning. 
The example of the fig tree is used regarding Jerusalem. To know the season. The example of a thief is used regarding the last days. The judgment would be local on Israel. The judgment will be universal in the last days. And we've been looking at that in the book of Revelation regarding the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Specific signs of coming judgment can be seen regarding Jerusalem. But no real clear advanced sign of the end. There are signs, but nothing that is so definitive that we will know for sure because no man knows the day or the hour. There will be a time to escape judgment, he said, for, from Jerusalem. But there would be no time for flight regarding the destruction at the end of the age. So in, in this whole text, and if you read Luke 21 and you read Mark 13, it's similar, that the answers seem to overlap. And part of the reason is because I think that the Jerusalem judgment was a precursor, a prophetic precursor of what would be taking place in the last days as well. It was a picture of what was yet to come, not just for a nation, but for the earth. But there were signs, and there are signs, and these signs we must see, and we must look at, and we must understand. I have the signs, if you put that slide up for me, Seth of what Jesus records as signs that would be common and visible before the sacking of Jerusalem and even have remained to this day. Put them all up at once. It's all right. Deceivers will come, claiming to be Christ. Wars and rumors of wars. Great national and political upheaval. Famines and earthquakes, which he says are only the beginning of birth pangs. Persecution, martyrdom, to the extent he says you will be hated. Many will fall away and even betray one another. Many false prophets who will lead many astray. An increase in wickedness and the love of many will grow cold. But through it all, the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now I want to just tell you six realms very quickly that these things affect, that you're going to be aware of, that you are aware of, that you need to be aware of, of signs of the time in which we live. The first is the political realm. Wars and rumors of wars. The world becoming more and more hostile. I was reading this week about just the... JFK in his time talked about the potential of a nuclear holocaust and what it would do to the earth. And he made a statement, I wish I would have written it down, about the vulnerability that we as mankind have because of any crazy man who might acquire a nuclear weapon. We are at the mercy, <laughs> as, as mankind, of some crazy leader or some crazy terrorist acquiring a nuclear warhead and deciding to use it. Now, if you do not believe in the sovereignty of God, you can live in continual fear of that. If you do not know that God's hand is upon the affairs of man, you can live in continual fear of that. And the reality is many, many people live that way today. Many young people fear with, of the future, the unknown of the future. But the point of this text, as is the point of Revelation, is to show that it is God who is in control 
of the affairs of men. But contrary to the dreams of the Enlightenment and the empty promises of secular educators and scientists, man is not getting better and better. His heart is growing more and more dark. He's just merely learning how to become more efficient at killing. That's the sad state of the world that we live in. Thank God that he's in control. In the natural realm, we talked about this in our class today. There will be famine and pestilence and earthquakes, and it's amazing all the earthquakes and the volcanoes and the turbulence that's happening on the earth. And what we find in the book of Revelation that it is God who is at work sounding a trumpet of warning to awaken men. The whole continent of Australia on fire. Almost. It's the Lord. It's a trumpet of God sounding a warning to awaken men. It is not Mother Earth, the idolatrous, atheistic goddess. But it is God's hand and it's mercy to awaken men. The third realm is the moral realm, the political realm, the natural realm, the moral realm Jesus speaks to. He said it would be a day of lawlessness, a day when people would reject any kind of authority. The Greek word here, lawlessness, is found 16 times only in the New Testament. Twelve of those times it's translated iniquity or iniquities. It's the strongest word in the New Testament to describe sin. There are two other major words in the New Testament used to describe sin, but both of them contain the element of ignorance. Listen, that is that they can refer to people sinning against God while they're unaware of who he is and what it is that he commands. But this word, translated lawlessness, carries with it the exact opposite meaning. It means that man knows what the moral law of God is, but not only purposely chooses to disobey it, but chooses to do away with God's law altogether, so it translates it lawless or without God's law. It is the intent of the rebellious heart to deny the righteousness of God. And so Paul would write in Romans 1, so the wrath of God from heaven is poured out on all unrighteousness. I'm sorry, this is not a happy, clappy sermon. But brothers and sisters, it is reality. It's the days in which we live, as it was the days in which the disciples lived. But it is increasing, and it is becoming increasingly dark. And Jesus is saying that before he returns, people will be given over to sin in such a way as even they were in the days of Noah, where they provoked God to destroy the earth. They will do what is evil and they will call it good. Is that not happening? And they will, they will seek to eradicate all elements of God's law from their lives. The secularization of society that we are living in in America. And they will live according to how they feel and they will follow the desires of their reprobate minds. Since 1973, we have killed 60 million kids through abortion. Over 60 million. And God is sounding a trumpet of warning of impending judgment. 
And he is allowing the darkness to increase, to wake up the church, and that we might herald the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth and say, prepare, get ready, be awake. The Lord's return is imminent. Uh, things go on as they always have, Rick. And once I start sitting watching that football game today, I'm going to forget all that you said. Don't do that. These things are true, and God is at work behind the scenes. I thought about this. Can you imagine living in the days of Noah and watching this crazy man build an ark on dry land? It took him 100 years. That's us. We are the crazy man building an ark on dry land. We are. That's why we feel so unheard and, and so maligned and, and so excluded and, and so marginalized because we are the crazy men, the crazy men and women building an ark for the impending judgment of God and calling as many as we can into the ark, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, by the grace of God, I say to you, come to the ark of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The days in which we are living are increasingly dark. And you are asleep because you have been lulled into it by the angel of darkness himself. But you must awaken to the voice of God and come into the ark of God. The fourth realm is the spiritual realm. There will be false prophets. There, there false prophets who teach and preach contrary to the true word of God. But not only will there be false prophets, the love of many will actually have grown cold due to religion. Due to religion. It's religion. It's, it's, it's traditional, a dead religion that causes men's hearts to grow cold. Some of you in this room today might have allowed your heart to grow cold because of the, of the routine of religion. And you have to break out of it into, into a vibrant, living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And be aware of the Spirit of God at work within you. Another realm that will be impacted is, is simply by the preaching of the gospel reaching the nations of the earth. Some of you watched this week with me uh, last week, uh, the, the gospel being coming to Iran and sovereignly coming to Iran almost, and the church in Iran just emerging from the ashes of Islam and how there are more and more and more believers being coming to Christ in in, in, in Islamic nations by the power of the Spirit of God awakening their hearts and through signs and through wonders. The gospel, and because we have technology, we can preach the gospel to the ends of the earth now through technology. And if we can't preach it through technology, we can get where we need to go because we can get there quickly now by airplane or however else we need to get there. The gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. And this is a sign of the times in which we're living. Paul believed that he had reached the whole earth with the gospel. In Colossians, he said that. Little did he know what he had yet to reach. We now know the whole earth, what it entails, and we can preach, and it has, and it is being preached to the whole earth. The social realm obviously has been impacted and is being as a sign of what is happening on the earth today. 
It's amazing. He said, life will go on as usual. Jesus said, life will go on as usual, just as in the days of Noah. They're watching the ark being built, and life is going on. See, that's what he is saying. The emphasis is not so much on how wicked the people were in the day of Noah, even though they were wicked. The emphasis is on the fact that the people of Noah's day, listen, in spite of being warned, carried on with business as usual. The mundane and ordinary things of life so preoccupied them that they ignored the preaching of Noah and they ignored the building of the ark. And so little attention did they pay to Noah that when the floods came, they were caught totally by surprise. That's the emphasis in verses 40 and 41 here. And that's the days in which we're living. There can't be a more... Uh, deluding and compromising state that a person could live in and to live in 21st century California and America. We are the, the frog in the pot. We, live in, we, we are like that frog in the kettle. Lest we be awakened by the Spirit and by the voice of God to say, know who you are and know the times in which you're living. Amen. Are you with me? But Jesus then goes on to speak. Now hear this, because I'm going to sum this up in 10 minutes. And God, by the Spirit of God, is going to drive this point into our hearts because this is the issue. All of these things are true. You are living in the last days, very possibly, very likely, the last days of the last days. I always watch for certain things to, to say, okay, I don't know the day or the hour, but I got a sense I can know when it's going to be really, 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 really close. Of course, one thing that many people believe is that when Israel came back to the land in 1948 and became a nation, that was a huge sign to many Christians. You cannot deny that that was an amazing reality. A scattered people coming back. And still the hotbed that the Middle East is, is all interesting in terms of the last days. But I always go, as soon as they clone a human being, And I, I know they're trying. I, in my mind, this is just me. I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord. In my mind, as soon as man clones a human being, I'm going to look for the Lord Jesus to be coming back anytime. When man, again, steps into the place that only God himself can have, and, and they create human beings through cloning, I think we're going to be very, very near. That's just my thinking. So there are things like that that I look at. Economy could collapse. That doesn't mean that much. And wars, yeah, obviously it's all pointing toward it. But this is what the Lord would say to us. Look what he says at the end of 24. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? 
And I ask this to my own heart this week, and I ask you today, who then is the faithful and wise servant? This is the prescription for the church until Christ returns. Faithfulness, preparedness, expectancy, and stewardship. Faithfulness, preparedness, expectancy, and stewardship. Faithfulness, preparedness, expectancy, and stewardship. That's the prescription. That's what we must have in our hearts and minds as we prepare, as we are aware, as we pray, as we think on the time in which we live. As a young man or a young woman, rather than wondering about your future, know your future in God. Find your peace in Christ. And begin to pray to gain understanding and to gain wisdom. Remember, the Lord Jesus does not merely give us these signs and these warnings to inform us about his return, but to transform us, to get us into activity and emotion so that he, when he returns, he'll find us doing what it is that he has called us to do. Preparedness. Are you prepared for the return of Jesus Christ? Do you have your spiritual house in order? Is your family in order? Fathers, I urge you by the mercy of God to speak to your children in a way that they would might understand without frightening them of the reality of these truths. Get your family in order. Prepare your children for the days in which they live. Is your own life in order? I mean, the question is, if Jesus returned today, would you be ready? Because there's not going to be a phone call telling you. But every eye will see him. Every eye will see him all across the whole planet at the same time. Whether it's midnight or it's noon, every eye will see him on that day. Preparedness, are you ready? Are you living faithfully to the degree that you can, faithfully, None of us are perfect. None of us do all these things perfectly. But you know when you're faithful and when you're not faithful. Are you living faithfully? Who is the faithful and wise servant? Are you living with expectancy? These are the parables of chapter 24 and 25. The parable of the virgins. Preparedness. Five were ready, five were not. Some interpret this as the five that were not ready are unbelievers. The five that were ready are the church. Others view it that the, that the five that were unready are the church that's asleep, and the five that were ready are the church that's awake. I, it doesn't matter to me. I want to be ready. When the bridegroom returns, I want to be ready. I want there to be oil. 
All the oil represents the holy. I don't know what the oil represents. I don't think Jesus thought about every parable, what it represents. He's telling a story to make a point. Will you be ready when the bridegroom comes back, he's saying. Will you be prepared? Will you live with expectancy, which is different than preparedness? Expectancy speaks to the degree to which we are longing for him. This is, a, this is an interesting thing to me. I don't think a lot of believers long for his return. You know why? Because we love the world more than we love the thought of his return. Because heaven is so unknown. Because the future is so unknown. It has a degree of, of like, ah! Do I really have to worship with that guy forever? And our roots have gone so deep. And this was the whole point of Matthew, the teaching of Matthew. Our roots have gone so deep into the world. We've become so much a part of the world. Hmm. You ever had to transplant a plant that was root-bound? It's a 50-50 isn't it? Man, you've got to give it a lot of B12 in hopes that the roots will survive. Expectancy. Remember when you fell in love, that first, your first love. Remember your first love for Jesus. I remember when I, I could hardly wait to see Kath. We were too young to be seeing each other, but we did. This is all I could think about was to see her again, to get to where she lived however I needed to, however I could, to talk to her, to be with her. And I was too young to have it be true love, but what I felt I thought was, but there's this longing when you fall in love. When we love Jesus, there's a longing for him, is there not? A longing for him above everything else, above anything the world can offer. That's what this parable is speaking of, expectancy. Is our love for Christ passionate? Is it expectant? If we love him, we will love his return. Titus 2.13 says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Faithfulness, preparedness, expectancy, and then stewardship. This parable of the talents is a spooky parable to me because there's reward and there's loss with what you have been given. If you are a steward of what God has given you faithfully, there will be reward for being faithful. That is eternal reward. And there will be loss, not of salvation, but of reward. Whatever God has, however he does that, into eternity. There's authority in the new earth. There's not, everybody's not going to have the same exact, I don't believe, I think scripture teaches, authority. Some will be rulers, Jesus said, over much more. And Paul speaks of passing through the fire 
and having there be loss in Corinthians. And the parable of the talents is basically asking, what are you doing with what you have been given? Of course, the talent in their day was money. So let's begin there. What are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your money, church? Is it all being spent on our own pleasure or are we saying, Lord, what would, I, what would you have me do? I have a good friend who said, there's no such thing as discretionary money in the kingdom, in your budget. Oh, this is discretionary. There's no such thing, he said. It all belongs to God and your question is, what do you want me to do with it, Lord? After I've paid my bills and done what I need to do and given my tithe, or whatever I've desired to give, what would you have me do with this? But not only money, but time, as Matt was speaking of earlier, time and our energy, our gifts. If we could see with just clarity for one second eternity, we would understand the significance of the principle of stewardship. Many Christians live today with little or no no thought that everything we have belongs to God. God has saved us from our sin. He's taken us from darkness to light, not just to save us from hell, but to empower us with his spirit that we might accomplish his will on earth. That's the reason he's given us what he's given us. Your house, your job, your children, your spouse, your time, your money, your gifts, your talents, everything we have belongs to God And someday each of us will be judged according to our faithfulness of how we have used what God has given us to accomplish his will. Believe it, it's true. You will be held to account before the Lord. Love your wives. Train your children and teach them. Be faithful with your money. Use your time wisely for the glory of God. So what we are doing with what we've been given is hugely important. And the message of chapters 24 and 25 are basically this, that we are living in these last days. Things around us will increasingly become dark Thessalonians even tells us that at the very end, it's going to be super hard. Super hard. I actually, one time in my life, felt like the Lord said to me, I want you to be able to teach the Bible without having a Bible. Because there could come a day when you're going to need to. This was when I was a young believer, young pastor. I thought in my mind, I think I could teach a lot of the New Testament without a Bible. I know I could teach Romans without a Bible. And I know I could teach Ephesians without a Bible. And I could probably do Colossians and Philippians as well. Because there could come a time when I'm going to not be able to use my Bible. Can you do that? You need to try to to get yourself such a grip of the Word of God that 
living out your life into the future, you're able to communicate God's word without having these things. Ah, what is the good news? We're in Christ. He's paid the price for us, right? He's in control of the affairs of men. The world is not spinning out of control. God is at work behind the scenes. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting for as many as will be saved. Preach the gospel, brothers and sisters, in season and out. Share your faith as often as you can. Tell as many as you can the truth of Jesus. Know the times in which you're living. Be aware of the signs of the times. And as you see these signs increasing, know that the day of the Lord is at hand. Amen. God is faithful. Stand with me if you would.